House Conspiracy podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking to Adam Anderson. He's an Israeli-born PhD candidate at Griffith University, and you can tell straight away when he talks that he's a real smart guy. And uh, throughout this podcast, his meditations on performance, gender, politics, and art making, I, I think are, are really valuable and, and well thought out. Um, and not to mention, I, I, am a, I am a sucker for his accent. Um, so he's a, he's a nice listen, sort of, aesthetically as well. Um, unfortunately, aesthetically, uh, before we start, I just want to apologize for the background noise in the episode. Um, the house was getting some lovely renovations out the front um, from uh, Greater Brisbane Gardens. Uh, but unfortunately, compounding that on top of the regular West Village business, um, everything sort of came out a bit cacophonous. But thanks to the uh, lovely, um, the lovely uh, council-sponsored microphones that we've got and our editor Tyler, everything should come out sounding okay. Anyway, some regular housekeeping. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you can visit us at houseconspiracy.org to learn more about our artists and to see how we can support you. Also at the moment, expressions of interest are up for people in groups to send in advice and feedback and to potentially take over House Conspiracy in 2018. Um, go to houseconspiracy.org slash 2018 before August 27th to learn more. And now, on to the show. Adam's studio is pretty simple. It's a table and it's clothes. Adam's sewing, stitching, and pulling together fabrics to create extravagant costumes for the performances he'll undertake in the space. I've never seen any of his live work before. Unfortunately, his last exhibition overlapped with a house conspiracy private showcase, but you get a sense of what it's like really quick from the imagery and the ephemera left over. Um, heck, just one look at his uh, headshot on the House Conspiracy website, link in the podcast description, uh, captures sort of every ounce of your attention. Inside the studio, there's, there's a mask and there's a cloak hung from a hook on the wall. There's a white painted board for blocking out the window and a small hand sewer on the table. Around the room are a few sheets and shreds of fabric. It's not really a mess. It's more of an ordered workspace. It's comfortable. And in this comfortable space, Adam sits quiet and works. He speaks quiet, too, and in this well-thought-out manner. And now, actually, here he is, doing just that. I give you Adam Anderson. Bit of a bit of a um, like an introverted extrovert, <laughs> one of those sorts of things. Introvert primarily in your personal, but extrovert in your art, or yeah. Well, I think I think the the whole performance thing comes as a result of what I'm interested in, not not as a sort of preconcept. That makes sense. Like, don't perform for the sake of performing, and perform because it's necessary for what I do if it's not performing that necessitated what you do what is it that led you to the practice that has you performing um, I think it's an increasing kind of um, increasing awareness or in increasing emphasis on the body um, and its surface particularly um, and the more that sort of became important, the more I myself had to 
do that, you know, to start emphasizing my own body and the surface of my body. And, you know, yeah, it calls for a bit of, it calls for a bit of sacrifice sometimes. Like, you know, if you can see, I don't have any eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> and I shave my head whenever I perform as well. So it's, yeah. Is that as a sort of Buddha sort of thing? Like why, why particularly shave your head? Um, because I hate wearing wigs and I can't have boy hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I think it's there is a definitely a bit of a ritualistic thing to mm -hmm. shaving your head, and it is very emancipating in a way once you've done it, feeling all of it gone like that, especially when you shave that plus your eyebrows plus your beard, not to mention all the body hair, but um, yeah, it gets very. Um, freeing, I guess. It's like a process of renewal before you go in and do the performance. Yeah, like an, you're erasing, erasing yourself, or erasing your everyday version of yourself, uh, and then rebuilding something else, mm -hmm. something that's supposedly more uh, deep or supposedly more sort of transcendent version of yourself. You were speaking about um, the body becoming more prevalent. Um, and so you need to become more aware of your own body and your own surface. Do you mean in terms of your own experience, you were becoming more aware of your own body or did you feel like there was a societal, social shift towards towards um, that hyper-awareness? I think it's a sort of simultaneous thing, really. Um, the way that you feel about your body affects how other people see, your, see you and your body as well. And... Um, I guess, I guess for me, um, it's always from the inside out. So um, the way that I treat my body is a way of trying to match or a way of trying to bring out what's inside. And people just instinctively seem to understand that when they look at my work. Um, and I think then they can then apply that to, them, to themselves and their own bodies, um, which I guess is where my work gains significance. Otherwise, it's just, you know, me and myself, which is not that interesting to anyone. <laughs> but, yeah. So are you thinking about your audience a lot while you're creating or? Um, it's not really while I'm creating. It's more while I'm post-creation, when I'm reflecting on it, uh, when I'm writing about it, uh, when I'm trying to justify why I'm kind of doing what I'm doing. Um, but it is important, I think, to to consider what other people are kind of getting or not getting from your work and how you can sort of attend to that. How do you, how do you balance that yourself? Like how do you balance sort of those thoughts of, well, people need to be getting something from this, but also I need to be expressing something truthful. Is it, is it a delicate balance? Is it something you kind of find easy to do? Um, and it's not difficult to do. I think it's just a matter of, ignoring other people while you're concentrating on yourself and ignoring yourself while you're concentrating on other people. Hmm. Um, it's just a cyclical thing. Uh, at first you make, you do it intuitively, you just do what it is that you do. Um, and then later on when you reflect on it, you think, well, okay, this is what it means to me. What can it mean to other people stemming from what it means to me or stemming from what it, how it might be perceived by other people? Um, and I don't think that's, it's not like uh, a layer of paint or, or an artifice that you, that you give meaning to your work after you've made it, but it's, 
um, it's just part of the process of thinking about it and and then seeing what what kind of uh, innate knowledge has come out through your own experimentation and play. And once you have a realization around what it could mean to someone else, does that affect then how you display the work or does it mainly sort of affect the didactic? Um, mostly in terms of research, it, exp- it, it affects what I write about it. It affects um, at least what I have to justify and what I don't have to justify, what I have to address uh, and defend and what I don't have to address and defend. Uh, and that's just the conventions of research is to just always try and cover as many bases as possible. Um, but I don't do that when I'm just casually talking about my work. It's, it's just part of the nature of the beast of research. And you are, yeah, because you are currently undertaking a PhD at Griffith. Yeah. Um, what are you taking, what are you looking at? What's your thesis? What's your um, Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit weird. <laughs> um, that's all right. It's an art PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so, I mean, I guess with a lot of art PhDs, what we do is um, we start off making our own work. And the work is essentially the research. And then we reflect on the work, like I've, like I've said, and we try and contextualize the work, the field that we're in, the kind of conversations we're engaged with, uh, engaged in. And, um, and yeah, and see how the, the two things sort of marry and feed each other, uh, also through text-based research, obviously. Um, so with me, it's a matter of defining what it is that I do, um, justifying it through literature. Um, but then at the same time, it's also, it needs to be some kind of new knowledge um, mm-hmm. in PhD. So in my case, it, it's a little early to say, but it's, it seems like what I'm going to be doing is um, inventing or pointing out a category of art that hasn't sort of been talked about before. Um, and Which I've, is? Well, I'm calling it cosmopoetic extravaganza. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> um, cosmopoetic is a maybe a bit of a high-sounding term, but it just means world-creating. Um, and extravaganza comes from the 1980s and 90s uh, drag balls in New York. Uh, it was originally the name of a house, but now it basically just means the best drag, the best most flashy uh, outfits that you have. So basically the art that I'm looking at is um, mostly to be found on Instagram, but also in the in the art world in general. Um, artwork that has that cosmopoetic element to it. It deals with the unconscious of dreams or identity or um, uh, metaphysics or religion or whatever. And at the same time, has the attention to the body that extravaganza implies. And extravaganza also implies performance Mm -hmm. um, and also implies a certain queer element, which I don't think is really necessary, but it does. I do want to maintain that link to that. Because of its etymology, like that's where it began. Yeah. Um, When you say it's mostly work found on Instagram, why why is that the case? Is it just as a community of people there engaging with those ideas or...? Yeah, I think it is a community of people that um, engage, but it's also a matter of there not being any other sort of space or cohering kind of institution for them. Um, a lot of people get mislabeled as 
makeup artists or stylists or drag queens when they're in fact not any of those things or all those things plus more. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I can find quite a lot of people on Instagram, but also in the art world, people like Lee Barry, um, who are hard to define as performance artists or as, um, you know, installation artists or whatever. Um, so I'm inventing a word to describe them, hmm. basically. Right, and that's that's sort of the, the new knowledge, the new sort of framing yeah. around the art that you're bringing. Yeah, well, it's a hoop you have to jump through, so I'm jumping through it. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you don't, you don't have sort of illusions of grandeur around the PhD process? Or... Oh, I definitely have illusions of grandeur, but that's <laughs> just part of the... <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to do what I do. There's nothing else I can do, so... It is what it is. It is what it is. And um, speaking of it is what it is, what is it, or where do you think the, the line is? Like, for instance, because talking about, like, people who get mistaken for just being a makeup artist or whatever, what's sort of the line that delineates people to sort of being the cosmopoetic? Is that it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's sort of the line that where, where people jump over to becoming that? What has to be part of a process for it to sort of be elevated if that's the right word or shifted to that sort of frame um i don't know that there's a clear line and i'm definitely not the authority to say what the line is um but i do think that one of the main differences between a kind of conventional idea of drag the kind of drag that you might see on rupaul's drag race Hmm. um and the kind of thing that i'm talking about um definitely has to do with conventional depictions of gender and valuing realness, valuing a convincing portrayal of stereotypical femininity. Um, I think the artists that I'm looking at are not interested in that at all. They're not really interested in gender at all. It's it's kind of beyond gender. It's beyond uh, race or sexuality. It's a little bit meta. <laughs> Going back to what you said earlier, the, the surface of the body, what do you mean by meta? <clears throat> By meta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I know what the, the term means, um, but in terms of this sort of discussion where it's not about gender or race. I mean, I mean that it's about, it, it's about not paying any heed to those categories, of mm. seeing those categories not as helpful markers of identity or, you know, not saying that my identity is defined by being gay or that my identity is defined by being male, but by saying that my identity is defined by something else um, and that male and gay are just categories that were invented and are used to control um, and keep an eye on people (laughs) rather than help them or find some kind of meaning in their own lives. So, because I find that that quite compelling as an idea, Um, sort of the idea that, yeah, of categories being invented and then used to control discourse, which then controls thought and yada, yada, yada. Foucault. (laughs) Foucault. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, So what is it then that you think, and this might not necessarily be about your work, and this is also a massive question, but what are the elements then of identity or of life or of being that give meaning when you sort of, try to fight and erase categories? And then why do you, why maybe are you looking at it through the surface of the body? Um, I think that, I think for starters that um, nobody really knows what it is that 
gives life meaning or what differentiates me from you or from anyone else. Um, it sort of goes to a very old question about whether or not identity is a construct, uh, which is the kind of prevalent theory in the 90s and even now. Um, you know, starting with Judith Butler and the, the idea that gender is performed, and I don't think anybody is really questioning that these days. Are you um, questioning that? No, I'm not questioning that at all. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm one, what I'm wondering is whether um, identity is completely constructed or whether there is some element of essential nature in there. Um, and if there is an essential nature, then can we somehow get at it? get at it or uh, talk to it uh, or tease it out through masquerade and masquerade because it's um, you know masquerade drag whatever you want to call it surface of the body uh, because it it's very liberating it's freeing it's the idea of the carnivalesque that um, you can suspend the sort of responsibilities that you have every day and you can mask those markers of identity that you, people usually ascribe to you um, and become something else temporarily. Uh, and because it's difficult to achieve and because it takes a lot of time and because it's not sustainable for a long, a long time, it becomes a, a sort of a ritual uh, mm. that has a climax and then it ends. Um, and yeah, in my case, it's it's me trying to mask as much of my my usual identity markers as possible. So I put contacts that cover my eyes. I've got makeup that covers most of my skin. I've got costumes that cover the rest of my body. I change the shape of my body. I wear very high platforms. Uh, you know, all these sorts of things that change the shape and the, the way that people interact and see and judge your body, as well as yourself. You judge your own body as well a lot. Um, and for me, it's always about not trying to look male or female. It's not not about trying to look uh, white or Middle Eastern or anything like that. Um, it's just about trying to look like whatever I feel inside. And I guess that for me, that creates the meaning that other people need to find for themselves when they both look at my work or when they do what I do. Leading by example. <laughs> well, just just leading my own life, and if it sets an example, then so be it. <laughs> a nice side effect of living honestly, maybe. Well, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think it's a very old saying that you should just be yourself, and everyone else is taken. And I think that's that's the truth. Um, there's nothing else you really can do, not honestly anyway, not for a sustainable amount of time. Um, so yeah. So shifting sort of away from there, you um, grew up in Israel and then shifted to Bundaberg and then to Brisbane. So, or maybe not in that order, but tell me, tell me about what was that, what was that like coming to Australia? Were you practicing art over in Israel? Before you came here, or? Uh, yeah, well, I was born in the desert in southern Israel, um, and I lived there for the first 10 years of my life, um, just slightly south of the Dead Sea. Um, and I had learning difficulties when I was young. 
So I, uh, I got sent to art therapy. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's where the art thing kind of kicked off. Um, so then at, at 10, I came to Bundaberg. Um, my dad got a job there, and uh, we just we all moved there. Um, and I kept going with art throughout primary school and got very serious about it in high school. Um, and then moved actually from Bundaberg to Brisbane and to Israel and then back to Bundaberg and then back to Brisbane, uh, which is where I'm at now. Why all the bouncing? Family stuff or...? Um, both family and, and personal stuff. Uh, I think maybe it's a generational thing, but coming out at my, my age is, was not, hard, not easy. Um, and I think things associated with that made me kind of need to to retrace my steps a bit. Um, but it's all pretty well resolved now. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, coming to Australia was definitely a very important part of my life. And uh, Australia has been very good to me. <laughs> very, very good to me. Do you do you miss Israel? Is there do you feel I guess speaking about identity again? Is there a part of your identity that's that's tied up there? Definitely, um, it's very hard to ignore where you've grown up and the environment that you've grown up in. Um, when I talk about you know transcending gender and sexuality, I often also talk about transcending national uh, and socioeconomic boundaries. Um, and that's partly because being from Israel, uh, especially in the climate that I'm in, um, can be a difficult subject with a lot of people. Um, and I abhor politics, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just I just try to accept that being Jewish and being from Israel is part of my identity. It's part of you know, people I love still live there. My family is still there. Um, and and then and hearing bad things being said about Israel is, is difficult. But um, obviously there are infinite amount of sides. And uh, it's the most one of the most complicated geopolitical conflicts. Oh, absolutely. Of, uh, of ever. Absolutely. Um, which is why I think that in many ways reserving judgment is the best policy, or at least uh, not being too extreme with opinions. And that's what I try to do anyway. I, I try not to go too far on the left or the right. Is that just to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict, or is that sort of in general? That's a general thing. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, not to get too into Buddhism, but I think that's a good sort of strategy for a lot of these things. The, the to middle just, path? The middle path, yes. Um, yeah, there's there's no point in being extreme. I think ex extremism is a pretty new thing to the world, mm. and uh, I'm not sure where that's going to go. No, and it's arising more and more, like you said, on both the left and the right. Yeah, and it's going to be an interesting era, I think, that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Buddhism. Is that a philosophy or spiritual spirituality that you particularly ascribe to, or is it just sort of you find there's a lot there to grab? No, I, I wouldn't say that I ascribe to any sort of 
dominant philosophy. I, I just the ultimate middle path. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, you know, I, I grew up Jewish. I went to a Catholic high school, and uh, and I learned about Buddhism. I, mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't say I know a lot about it, but it's definitely interesting. I think it's definitely got a lot of wisdom in it, um, as do most, you know, all religions really. Um, I think a lot of religions end up sort of saying, well, that's the same thing as well, but um, no, I, I'm not claiming Buddhism as my own or anything, no. Um, yeah, I think I think it's more just a sort of overarching uh, acceptance of, of spirituality or acceptance of that there are things that are unknown out there um, without getting too holy about it. Which makes sense given given particularly your work's um, sort of fascination with transcendence. Yeah. I guess. Um, those tie in together quite nicely. Yeah, but it is important, I think, not to get uh, too airy-fairy. Um, yes. Because that alienates a lot of people. Um, and in the end of the day, we all do live in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just a, an awareness of that other realm, um, particularly internally um that there are you know a lot of things inside of us our brains for instance that we don't fully understand um and just accept that for now for now yeah, yeah until we until we get a little bit deeper into it so um speaking earlier sort of like now that we know a bit about your history um speaking about sort of you fell into performance not out of a desire to perform, but because it's necessary for the work you do. And then speaking, of course, about, you know, Judith Butler's idea that gender is performance. Like, I can see it all sort of coalescing together. It does. Um, <laughs> uh, which is cool. Um, you're a very holistic person. Um, <laughs> Without meaning to be. <laughs> um, and so you've got um, a lot of that sort of stuff coming together, but did your art practice... How did it emerge? Did it begin with this sort of performance element or what were you doing sort of before now and then how how did your work change as you transitioned into? Well, I, I think like a lot of people, I began as a painter. Mm-hmm. Um, I say I like a lot of people because it's in, in many ways painting has become a kind of canonical go-to with art. Um, certainly historically, it's been quite privileged. Um, so that's that's how I began, but um, through going to university and even before that, um, I got interested. I've always been interested in identity, and um, I think starting starting off by painting on myself um, and painting on others, um, and then that painting morphing into makeup, which morphed into wearable art, um, and an endless kind of morphing of one kind of medium to another um, ended up in me becoming interested in doing uh, videos that sort of amalgamated those things or at least that showed that I had these different abilities um, that I could that are all part of part of a whole and that I wanted to talk about at the same time um, as opposed to just talking about a painting when I've also done a video or when I've also done a series of photographs um, and, you know, fast forward till now where I kind of no longer really care to, to explain too much to people, whether I'm a painter or a sculptor or whatever, they just 
I'm comfortable with anything that people ascribe to me, which is you know often performance uh, or video. Uh, but those things don't really mean much to a lot of artists these days, I think. Yeah, I was, I was about to ask exactly that. Like, yeah. It seems more and more that that's, those are categories that matter less and less, particularly even as, you know, documenting your own work with photographs that's right. then becomes part of the work itself, which I was talking to Tess Mahonishan mm-hmm. about yep. um, in the last residency. Um, she made the sculptures, make sculptures that, decompose and then she sort of worked out well she had to be a good photographer in order for those works to actually be seen by people and then the photography became the work and so I think yeah do you is there value in being these days I mean I think the answer is yes but there's like a nuance to it Um, is there a value to being sort of one thing and the best like the master of one or is it more and more the case particularly like with the modern economy and like how sort of freelancing as an artist sort of works, is there more use and more relevance in being a multifaceted artist? No, not really. I think um, it just depends on your interests and what drives you. Some people are just absolute masters of their own craft and mastering that craft is part of, part of their concept, part of their work, part of their practice, part of who they are. And um, that's perfectly fine, you know? Um, I think the issue comes in more when when artists that don't fit particular categories don't get the opportunities that other others do, um, which is why a lot of the artists that I'm interested in end up in places like Instagram, where it's not really even the work, it's documentation of the work, but it's, it's all that remains, uh, and it's the only place to show it. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with with being a master. <laughs> no, no, and that's yeah. The traces of the work being documented on Instagram, yeah, is an interesting idea. It's interesting. Um, how do you think that the internet and sort of the the sort of freely accessible ability to document, showcase, um, present your work has affected the arts industry, if if at all, quote unquote, industry. I think it's affected everything, <laughs> uh, especially the internet. Um, you know, a lot of the literature I read talks about how, uh, you know, modern technologies influence people's whole concept of themselves and the world they live in. Uh, so naturally, it affects affects art. Um, you know, people often criticize that we are bombarded by images uh, these days, and you know that's definitely true that we are. But um, I guess the thing with the accessibility is that you can kind of choose for yourself how much you want to be bombarded and by what. Um, so I, I guess, I guess in some ways, uh, the art industry has been profoundly influenced by by the internet and people being able to show their work. At the same time, uh, because the internet is so big uh, and because everybody's an artist and everybody's showing their work, uh, you do become a bit of a voice in the wilderness um, and you do still need those, uh, you know, those icons of the art world to kind of point at you and say, this is, this is somebody worth paying attention to. Um, and that's not for, 
fame or for anything like that. It's more for you to be able to continue doing what you're doing. Yeah. The legitimacy um, that allow you to be picked up by institutions and whatnot. That's right. Um, you know, nobody's really making money out of art, well, at least not many people. Uh, so with the constraints of the world, we just have to do whatever you can to continue making your work um, while at the same time balancing life. Uh, and, you know, it's been relatively easy for me because I've managed to stay within the institution of the university. Um, but that's not going to be forever. Uh, and you need to sort of develop some kind of strategy to keep yourself going. Mm. Yeah. What is your strategy? How, how far through your PhD are you? And I'm not even confirmed yet. So ah, uh, so you've got a while. Oh, I have, I have, yeah, a while. <laughs> Do you have sort of inklings for what's next for Adam Anderson? Or uh, maybe, maybe shorter term after the House Conspiracy Residency? Well, after the House Conspiracy Residency, I've got a collaborative exhibition with a friend of mine who's doing honors this year. Um, and Where's that? That'll be at the university, actually. Right. Um, but... Yeah, I've got I've got a few things in the pipeline. I'm also uh, writing a lot these days um, for my PhD, and that writing can then be converted to journal articles and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. So hopefully, something will come of that. Um, but you know, long term long term future, I couldn't really say. <laughs> I'm just sort of floating <laughs> uh, until I find something that I can hold on to. Cool. Well, I hope you do. Do you have a name for the exhibition that's coming up? Uh, yeah, it's called Homo Norans. Mm -hmm. uh, it means the telling person as opposed to Homo sapien, the knowing person. Ah. Uh, it look, it's looking at uh, the way in which narratives, um, both the narratives we tell ourselves and the narratives of society, uh, shape and inform our identities. Uh, and my collaborator is uh, Sophie Reed Singer. Uh, who is an amazing animator and uh, drawer. Wonderful. Well, I hope to make my way along to that. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll get an invite. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much for sitting down and talking, Adam. Thank you. The House Conspiracy Podcast is produced at House Conspiracy by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. Mixing and editing by Tyler William Morrison. And music by the Reverend Isha Ramdas. If you'd like to support House Conspiracy, you can do so at houseconspiracy.org slash donate, and you can learn more about what we offer here at houseconspiracy.org. Thanks for listening.